0: Welcome to IBGI's OrthoInform, where we talk all things ortho to help you move better, live better. I'm your host, Dr. Eric Shahab. With OrthoInform, our goal is to provide you with an in-depth resource about common orthopedic procedures that we perform every day. Today, it's my pleasure to welcome Dr. Christian Zhang, who will be speaking about carpal tunnel surgery. As a brief introduction, Dr. Zhang graduated from Carleton College, summa cum laude, with a degree in biology in 2005. He enrolled in medical school at the University of Chicago from where he graduated in 2009. He stayed at the University of Chicago for his residency training, which he completed in 2014. Following his residency, Dr. Zhang did his advanced training in hand and upper extremity surgery at Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Following the completion of his fellowship, Dr. Zhang joined the hand and upper extremity service at Illinois Bone and Joint in the Glenview-Wilmette Division. Dr. Zhang has received numerous awards throughout his academic and professional career, He played varsity basketball at Carleton College and was selected to the all-academic team for the Minnesota Intercollegiate Athletic Conference. He was selected Phi Beta Kappa in 2005. He received the Basic Science Research Prize in 2006 and received a highly competitive medical student research fellowship from the Orthopedic Research and Education Foundation in 2008. Dr. Zhang is also an accomplished musician, and if I have the story correct, was signed to a record deal during his college years and took a year during college to pursue a career in music. Though he never became the rock star musician we all would like to be, he certainly is a rock star orthopedic surgeon and has exceeded all expectations during his first five years with Illinois Bone and Joint. Dr. Zhang has helped thousands of patients on the North Shore with hand and upper extremity disorders and has been praised by his patients for his kindness, compassion, and clinical excellence. Christian, welcome to Ortho Inform, and thank you for being here.
1: Thank you for having me. Well,
0: we're here to discuss carpal tunnel surgery, and I guess the place to start is what is the carpal tunnel?
1: Uh, that 's always a good place to start in a lot of orthopedics. Everything is based off of anatomy, so the carpal tunnel very unimaginatively is named after an actual tunnel just in our wrist. If you look down at your hand where the forearm kind of attaches to your hand, the bottom part of the hand is technically the tunnel itself it 's made up of a few landmarks on the back side it 's made up of the bones uh, there are eight little bones in your wrist that 's the back side of the tunnel, and then the top is a ligament that runs over uh, the the Uh, top of that tunnel. And then through the tunnel actually runs all of the tendons that let you make a fist. And then the main nerve that we're going to be talking about today, the median nerve.
0: When patients have issues with the carpal tunnel, What generally are those issues?
1: So most folks will start uh, by feeling some sort of discomfort. It's a little patient-dependent, but most folks will either complain of uh, numbness and tingling, the median nerve. The nice thing about nerves is that they give a very specific area of real estate that we can kind of map out on the body. So the median nerve is responsible for giving us sensation in the thumb index, Uh, middle fingers and then often half of the ring finger so folks will often notice some numbness or tingling in in that distribution and it varies depending on the time of the day some folks will get it with certain activities like driving prolonged distances uh, if their job entails a lot of typing or gripping uh, or very commonly nighttime symptoms come into play people will wake up in the middle of the night with their hand numb and tingly feel like they have to shake it out or hang it over the side of the bed to wake it back up often in the later stage people will start to notice some changes in their motor function. So what do you mean by that? So if you do it, the nerves are split kind of between giving us sensation and allowing us to kind of interact and feel things throughout the world. But often they're responsible for motor uh, as well. So they control some of the muscles. And in our hand, they're responsible for some of the little muscles in the thumb and some of the little muscles in the fingers. So folks will notice a weakness in pinch, you know, opening jars or keys. People often complain about putting on like shirts or buttons. Uh, You get clumsy. People often think they started to get clumsier. And that's often a later finding when the nerve has been affected for a period of time.
0: So what is it about the carpal tunnel? Does it change as we get older? Why suddenly do people as we get older have these
1: symptoms that are related to the median nerve? That has evolved uh, as we've kind of studied this over the decades and 150 years since it's been first kind of categorized. A lot of it is related to just how we're built and the function of our hand. With that tunnel having a limited finite amount of space and with the tendons running through it, we use our hands all day long for everything. So sometimes it's not that the tunnel itself changes, it's just that We overuse the soft tissues in our hand or the tendons get swollen or inflamed and it just creates less space for the nerve, which is unfortunately sitting very superficially in the tunnel. Uh, You can have other changes that can be related to other medical conditions. Uh, Sometimes rheumatoid arthritis is a culprit, Uh, folks with diabetes, Mm -hmm. uh, thyroid conditions. uh, Those medical conditions change kind of the milieu of our cellular workup uh, and cause certain tissues to either swell. Or get larger and take up more space, which functionally just decreases the volume in that tunnel.
0: Got it. Okay. So let's say a patient comes to you. They're experiencing symptoms of carpal tunnel. They're being awakened in the middle of the night by the burning in their hands. They're having difficulty buttoning their shirts. They're dropping things like you're mentioning. What are some of the things that you're looking for on your clinical exam to help you diagnose carpal tunnel, because there are some conditions that mimic carpal tunnel,
1: correct? There are, uh, and that's the difficult part with the hand uh, or the wrist in general. There are so many moving parts uh, and so many tiny little bones uh, and tendons and ligaments that all work beautifully in concert when they're working well. Uh, it's kind of amazing that they work as well as they do as long <laughs> as they do. Yeah. But arthritis can mimic pain uh, uh, like a carpal tunnel syndrome, mm-hmm. specifically thumb arthritis. We see a lot of basilar, we call it basilar joint arthritis. Mm-hmm. Uh, we tend to make things sound fancier than they are, but that's <laughs> basically just arthritis at the base of the thumb. Uh, that can cause uh, inflammation and irritation that can mimic carpal tunnel syndrome. Basic tendonitis, overuse type injuries, you're mm-hmm. doing a ton of typing or if you have a more of a manual, t- type labor job doing a lot of hammering or fine motor stuff mimics carpal tunnel as well but it's often tricky to tease out what exactly it is a lot of the diagnosis initially when people come in is based off of just clinical exam right exactly what they're feeling. You kind of take into account what they do for a living and and how they are presenting from that standpoint. From a physical exam standpoint, this technically, so carpal tunnel syndrome, we in orthopedics, we get a lot of x-rays, we get a lot of MRIs and and other kind of uh, fancier tests to look into the diagnosis for things. Mm -hmm. Carpal tunnel syndrome is actually one of the few things in orthopedics that you technically can diagnose based solely on clinical exam. Mm -hmm. So there are a few physical exam findings we look for just specific when looking at the hand when someone presents a late stage finding which usually people won't present with initially but it's a dead giveaway on physical exam The median nerve that gets pinched in carpal tunnel syndrome kind of controls the muscles in the thumb. uh, So at the base of the thumb, help you move your thumb around and pinch. So in a late stage finding, people will have a big divot in their muscles. Uh, So if anybody looks at their hands and they'll see kind of the muscle, looks like it atrophies, gets smaller with time, you get that Mm -hmm. divot. That's a dead ringer for bad carpal tunnel syndrome. Prior to that, the physical exam findings are based on us testing the nerve and how irritated it is around the carpal tunnel. So we do certain little strange tests. Uh, One is called the Tenelles test, where we basically tap over the carpal tunnel on the person's forearm and palm. Uh, And if the nerve is very irritated or pinched, that bothers people a lot. Uh, Mm -hmm. You'll get little kind of zingers. Uh, If anybody's heard of sciatica out there from back issues where you get little zingers shooting down the leg. Same thing happens in your arm. Mm -hmm. Little electric shocks that shoot down the fingers. Uh, So that's the Tenelle sign. Another very common test we use is something called a Durkin's compression test. It's just where we kind of force pressure down on top of the carpal tunnel on the palm by just pressing on someone and flexing their wrist up. So you're restricting the tunnel a little bit further. Exactly. You're basically reacts. Yep, you're basically recreating kind of carpal tunnel syndrome for the most part Mm -hmm. and you just hold folks there for a few seconds. If the nerve gets irritated they'll get the numb, tingly feeling in the thumb index middle finger or a a variation thereof Uh, and that's kind of a sign that they have it as well. Any use for the um, pinprick sensation and and the differentiation between one and two points yep yep so it's yep. been a
0: long time since i've done that
1: <laughs> <laughs> they, they we again make things sound fancier they call it the Semmes weinstein testing where it's you take these little filaments basically and you kind of poke at uh, the finger the nerves are so hypersensitive in our fingers uh, which is unfortunately why often things in our hands bother us so much but we interact and experience the world through our hands mm-hmm. uh, so those nerves are so perfectly tuned that they can pick up tiny little pinpricks and they can pick up little distances between tiny little pinpricks of the in the distance of millimeters. So when the nerves get irritated or if you have long standing carpal tunnel, the nerve just starts to work less well. So all of those fine kind of differentiations become less distinct. So we often will use those little filaments or test, just like you said, two-point discrimination, which basically you can think about if you unfolded a paperclip and you kind of put those two ends of the paperclip together and you poke the two pieces down onto the finger. And if somebody can say, oh, it's it's one point or two points and then you slowly just bring those points farther and farther away uh, so that you can discern either very close distances or far away distances in bad carpal tunnel syndrome it's harder to discern those fine points so it, it gets to the point where it's you know farther and farther away you still feel the one two
0: pinpricks feel like one and no matter yep. how far apart you you have to put them very far apart yep. for people to distinguish because again the nerve just isn't working well isn't working efficiently yep exactly and then there're also some changes in the in the glands in the hand you'll see some yep. some drying of the hands
1: yeah yeah yeah. those are kind of the strange symptoms uh, that folks get that we often don't uh, associate with nerve function nerves are you know wildly important for us they control not only the sensation in the muscle but all of the small little capillaries or little blood vessels in our fingers, some of the glands that are sweat glands and things. So folks will start to get drier hands. Another common complaint is an itch uh, in your hand or your fingers that you can't scratch. It sounds very strange, but Hmm. the fingers kind of itch and people will scratch it, but it doesn't go away. It's just because of how the sensory kind of changes the the glandular stuff in, in the fingers. It's kind of amazing.
0: Okay, so there's a lot obviously that you look for on physical exam. You get a lot of information from history. And um, you had mentioned that there's not really any specific test, like an X-ray and MRI, that makes a diagnosis. It's typically made off of clinical, and, clinical exam and clinical history. Uh, there are some tests, and specifically an electromyogram. Mm-hmm. And with an EMG, what's the purpose of that test, and what information does that give you, About your patient with uh, carpal tunnel syndrome?
1: So we use EMGs. Again, you're spot on where the, the carpal tunnel syndrome is a clinical diagnosis, but the EMG, just like you said, it's often split into two pieces. One part is the EMG part, the electromyogram that tests the muscle response to signals traveling down the nerves. And then the flip side of that is something called a nerve conduction study or a nerve conduction velocity study that tests how well the signals travel down your nerve. So an EMG is is one of uh, the only tests that can give us objective data, everything else being subjective based on how people perceive uh, their symptoms. So the EMG can actually test how well the nerve is functioning Mm -hmm. So it gives us that objective data. So we will often get an EMG in folks just to help confirm the diagnosis. It actually serves uh, multiple purposes. One is to say yes or no to carpal tunnel syndrome or other compressive Mm -hmm. neuropathies in the arm. Uh, It can also delineate nerve pinches in the neck, so cervical radiculopathy, which helps us to tease out whether something is actually carpal tunnel or if those symptoms are coming farther upstream from the neck.
0: So if the nerve is compressed farther up and not in the wrist, it can still get symptoms that would be similar to carpal tunnel and then doing treatment for carpal tunnel when it's a problem in the neck would be pretty ineffective, obviously. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Okay. So that's the tricky part with, the, mm-hmm. with those
1: nerves. Uh, anything yeah. downstream can be affected in a very similar way. So that nerve study kind of helps to tease that out. Uh, it says yes or no to a problem. But then more importantly, what the nerve study does is that it often will chop it up into different subcategories. Mm-hmm. So mild carpal tunnel syndrome, for example, moderate, Got severe, it. and then very severe. And then those subcategories are what really kind of drives our treatments for how we chase after carpal tunnel syndrome.
0: And then like an x-ray, an EMG does have some variability based on who does it, right? It's not a test that is easily reproducible, so there's some variability in the test. I don't know if there's variability from one time you take the test to the next or from one person doing the electromyogram performing the test. Yeah, probably
1: a little bit of both. That's always the tricky uh, thing with a test that tries to be objective. There are probably a few percentage points that swing both ways, positive or negative. Yeah. And there is some interpatient differences. There is, or intrapatient in the same person if they got it multiple times. There is some variation in terms of who is doing the test as well. We work with some really good folks who do a fantastic, super thorough job and have been able to reproducibly do it for decades, which is great. So we're fortunate to be in and work where we are. Um, but that is very true. There is some variability in, the, in that testing.
0: Let's take a patient who presents to you with some of these, Signs and Symptoms of Carpal Tunnel Syndrome. And I'd like to just discuss briefly some of the non-operative interventions for carpal tunnel.
1: Once we kind of diagnose carpal tunnel in someone, both between the clinical exam and that EMG uh, test, the treatments kind of start to open up based on how they feel and how progressive their symptoms are. We always try to start non-operatively if we can. Uh, That's not always possible with carpal tunnel. Mm -hmm. Uh, Some folks will present a little bit later, but for the non-operative approaches, it basically falls into three main categories. Uh, One is activity modification. So if we can kind of drill down into what the person does on a daily basis and figure out that this person's symptoms always happen when they drive to work or it always happens when they're at work typing for prolonged periods of time. Mm -hmm. If you can kind of pinpoint a certain activity that seems to be aggravating the carpal tunnel syndrome, then you can work to kind of modify that. Driving is a little bit difficult, but you can try to either adjust the size of the steering wheel, (laughs) as strange as that sounds. You can get little kind of over wraps. It's the same thing like over wrapping a tennis racket or a golf club, Mm -hmm. just making the grip a little bit wider. That tends to take pressure off of the carpal tunnel. That falls into play for a lot of Truck drivers or long haulers who have to kind of uh, get out there and kind of drive for a long period of time for desk type folks, a lot of it ends up being the classic kind of ergonomic assessment. Right. Make sure your desk is the right height. Make sure your arms and your wrists aren't kind of flexed or extended a- at work. Have a pad that you rest your palms on. All of those things can be the activity modification kind of angle mm-hmm. we attack it from. And then we kind of up the ante from there. Uh, one of the mainstays of treatment for, non-operative treatment for carpal tunnel syndrome, is bracing the wrist. And it's usually bracing at night. The way we're built. Uh,
0: Why at night? Is that, because that's when the symptoms tend to be most aggravating. Or, yeah.
1: Or, yeah. One of the the main common presentations, again, is that nighttime symptom where we'll mm-hmm. wake up in the middle of the night. The hand's very numb and tingly. You have to kind of wake it back up. And you, the, the reason for that is usually twofold. One is at night, we tend to curl up. That's mm-hmm. just how we're built. The flexors in our arm and our hand are strong. And so that position of curling up is compressing the nerve? Yep. Yep. Okay. It's that fetal position that just yep. mechanically creates less space in that tunnel. It just mm-hmm. makes it get pinched and causes trouble. So the bracing at night just holds you in a neutral position, doesn't let you flex your wrists, hopefully it takes pressure off the nerve and makes those symptoms a little less uh, aggravated. The other tricky part about nighttime is that you're not moving a lot. So during the day, we're constantly doing something and we're shifting positions. So even if the nerve gets pinched for a few seconds during the day, a few seconds later, you've moved and it's It's taking pressure off and kind of changing things. So at night, it's the combo of being flexed and just staying like that for a long period of time. And so between activity modification, splinting, and then? The third angle is a steroid injection. Yes. We use uh, steroid, obviously, in orthopedics for a lot of different things. Mm-hmm. Tendinitis, arthritis is the big hitter. You get injections for arthritic changes in the knees, shoulders, everywhere. Uh, it's done a, a little bit differently in the carpal tunnel syndrome, but we do do steroid injections as another kind of third angle approach for non-operative management. And the purpose of that is to try to use the anti-inflammatory effects of the steroid to try to decrease any inflammation in the carpal tunnel or just calm down the nerve. It effectively tries to either calm down the nerve or create more space and volume in the tunnel itself.
0: Earlier, you mentioned that there are some patients who really can't be treated non-operatively. Describe that patient, and then we'll talk about more of the operative treatment as well.
1: So those folks are either the folks who come in with that muscle atrophy Mm -hmm. that I had mentioned before, that's the very, very classic sign of a very long-standing, late stage, severe carpal tunnel syndrome. Mm -hmm. Uh, The muscle atrophy means that the nerve has been very irritated for a long period of time. So once you get to that point, it's very unlikely that the non-operative measures will significantly alter the natural course. So in those folks, if they come in with the thenar atrophy, it, it kind of pushes us towards intervention. Yep. The reason being is that the nerves are a little bit trickier. If you think about arthritis, the natural history of arthritis, say, in a knee, is that once you get it, it tends to continue to worsen. I tend to use a lot of silly analogies in clinic, but it's akin to driving your car. You have tires, brand new tires on your car, beautiful tread. The mechanics are always yelling at me about the tread on my cars. (laughs) But the longer you drive the car, the more you wear out your tires. So arthritis is the same way. We bang up our knees and walk and do things for decades and decades, and you wear away the cartilage, you get arthritis. That tends to get a little bit worse, but no matter how far you are on the progression of arthritis, if you ultimately needed a surgery for like a total knee replacement, uh, very successful. New set of tires. New set of tires. Get your new set of tires. The hard part with the nerve is that if you progress from that mild to moderate to severe to permanent changes, once you're in that camp, even the surgery for it doesn't allow it to recover. So you can get, unfortunately, into that permanent change where if you wait too long or we don't get to it soon enough, then you, even with us intervening in the most aggressive way we can, you're still left with significant deficits. So those folks, it's unfortunate, but you often have to get to that surgical side of things sooner than later.
0: And then the other folks, the more common patient who doesn't have that severe stage of carpal tunnel syndrome, but who's perhaps done the injections, the splinting, activity modification, but still suffers from the symptoms. How do you um, indicate that patient for a procedure?
1: So often it's based on their responsiveness to prior treatments. So we often, if you're in that mild or moderate category, even on uh, the the nerve study, Mm -hmm. or if they've only had it for a short period of time, We often will start with the bracing, activity modifications, and injection, and then see how they respond. The data is a little bit all over the map for carpal tunnel because it's so subjective of a thing. Sure. But the data shows that if you are in that mild or moderate category and you, let's say, get a steroid injection, about 80% of folks will have really good relief, but only about 20% of those folks will have persistent relief after a year. So it tends to want to come back. So if we did, let's say a patient came in, we tried bracing, gave him a shot, they felt great for six months, six months later they give me a call and they say, hey, it's coming right back, just as bad as it was before that's when we start to look into considering doing the operation. Between the recurrence of the symptom Mm -hmm. and the failure of that conservative management and the downside of waiting uh, and with the potential of permanent changes, that tends to push us towards uh, doing uh, the surgery for it.
0: So any preparations that a patient who's been indicated for carpal tunnel needs to make? There's not much really to do ahead of time, is there?
1: Not really, unfortunately. It's similar to uh, anyone who you know has arthritis or, or tendonitis motion it, it helps us just keep things kind of loose mm-hmm. it's human nature to you know if something is uncomfortable or hurts we tend to kind of modify our activity or kind of tuck it in at our side and kind of hold it off to the side and not use it which tends to make it feel a little bit better in the short term because you're not poking at it but uh, in the long term again all those moving parts in your hands get stiffer and weaker and stiffer and weaker so you kind of are setting yourself up for a little bit of a worse result uh, for that okay and
0: then on the day of surgery this is a procedure that can be done under many different type of anesthetics so just take us through the surgical day for a patient what can they expect on that day of surgery yeah
1: so if you in a weird way if you have to have surgery A carpal tunnel release is like the type that you would want to have. On the spectrum of severity, a carpal tunnel release is very much on the the nice side of Mm -hmm. of things. You can do it very much as an outpatient. Vast, vast majority of these are done as an outpatient. So done at a surgery center. You can technically do it under straight local anesthesia, Mm -hmm. uh, meaning that you don't have to have any sedation. Uh, We basically numb up the hand and do the surgery that way. Very comfortable for folks. You don't really feel any pain. And then you kind of go on about your day. Uh, The surgery itself is is quite short. It takes, depending on uh, the person, 10 minutes, plus or minus 10, 15 minutes. It's not very long. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the whole day, let's say you were to do it at a surgery center, you show up. 20, 30, 40 minutes of kind of hanging out a little bit with us. And then within an hour, hour and a half, you're kind of home and kind of back to activity, which is kind of nice.
0: Do you splint your patients after?
1: So I do not. There's a a wild variation of a theme on there. The data shows that you don't have to. Again, this is kind of a nice one. There are a couple things that the data Within the last decade or more, has kind of borne out, which has been nice for patients. One is that you don't need antibiotics for a carpal tunnel release. Mm-hmm. Uh, we are obviously, all of us in the medical field that were outside of orthopedics and beyond, have become very aware of what antibiotics are doing to bacteria and mm-hmm. for us. So in an effort to try to curb, you know, these superbugs that might be resistant to certain antibiotics, we're trying to target certain surgeries that don't require antibiotics. So the vast majority of people don't require any antibiotics. Uh, the vast majority of people don't require splinting afterwards. In fact, it's it's quite nice the the surgery usually is a little incision on the palm. You might have a stitch or two, but we just kind of wrap the hand up in a little sterile dressing, basically a little gauze, maybe a little ACE wrap. Mm-hmm. I usually have folks wear that for a day or two just to keep it clean and get a jump start on the healing. But then after that, you can take it all off. You can shower and soap and shampoo just like normal. And then if you're out and about running errands, you put a bandaid on it right. and just protect it that way.
0: And then in terms of technique of the surgery, there's the open release where you make an incision and come down to mm-hmm. the ligament to open mm-hmm. up the tunnel. And then there's the endoscopic procedure where you get under the ligament and then yeah. release it above. Is that, I mean, is there a preferred technique? Is one proven better than the other? Is it more preference?
1: Yeah, it's basically more personal preference uh, for that. The long-term data, uh, six months or beyond, uh, shows that there's no difference between the two. You're spot on where the purpose of the carpal tunnel, it's nothing fancy. It's basically opening up the roof of the tunnel, that ligament that runs across. Mm-hmm. So either way, just like you mentioned, the open procedure, which is through a centimeter or two little incision, in the palm, or the endoscopic version, which is a smaller little incision just in a slightly different spot. Uh, the purpose of that is just to open the roof of the tunnel. So both of those are very, very effective, uh, and the long-term data shows that they're equal. And then in terms of the procedure itself, is it typically a very painful procedure? No, not at all, actually. It's kind of nice. That's another thing that has uh, that has changed in terms of uh, post-op pain management and what to expect. A lot of folks get by with just Tylenol or Advil, Mm -hmm. which is great. Mm -hmm. Some folks may require a day or two of a stronger pain medication, but a lot of folks, if they do take the stronger pain medication, they'll take it at night before they go to sleep just to get an extended period of, you know, some pain relief. But most, the vast majority of folks uh, throughout the day use Tylenol or Advil, uh, ibuprofen, and then a day or two after the surgery, they're feeling pretty good where they can start to taper off uh, Mm -hmm. from their payments.
0: And so let's go a couple of months down the road. What type of relief, what type of symptoms will patients have following a carpal tunnel, or what type of symptoms won't they have after a carpal tunnel
1: release? So, so the main goal, again, is to take pressure off that nerve. So the the presenting symptoms of that numbness and tingling, the burning sensation, the itch kind of that folks will feel, often will go away relatively quickly. Some folks get lucky within the first day or two, they'll notice a pretty mm-hmm. significant change where they'll wake up in the morning and they'll say, hey man, you know what, I didn't I didn't wake up 10 times last night. So (laughs) they'll get good relief. A lot of folks with that happens within the first couple of weeks, the longer term recovery from muscle strength, or if there's further more severe damage of the nerve tends to take months. Mm -hmm. But all of that kind of happens in the, in the background. There's no therapy that you need to do for it. There's nothing special you really have to do for it afterwards. It's basically the, the hope is that the surgery halts the progression from making it get worse. And then it hopefully lets that pendulum kind of continue to swing back so the restrictions early on are few it's basically just protecting the palm Mm -hmm. we don't want people to put a ton of pressure on it so we tell folks usually for the first week or two to try to limit their heavy lifting pushing or pulling but you can still type and drive and use phones and laptops and anything that you kind of need to do and then after the first week or two once that incision heals we kind of start to cut people loose and you can get back to anything that you want
0: well it's great i mean people having these pretty debilitating symptoms that can be managed surgically with a very simple procedure with a reasonably predictable outcome. But with that in mind, there's no such thing as any procedure that we do that doesn't come with some risk and complications. So what are the, the risks and potential complications of tonal release?
1: The main risk is damaging the nerve. That is always uh, a risk anytime we do incision on someone for surgery. There's always a risk of damaging the soft tissues or the nerve, a risk of infection. Mm-hmm. Uh, those are basically the two main risks, uh, similar to any surgery that we end up doing. They're actually very low in the surgery, especially if you, as a patient, kind of do your homework and and find an appropriate person to, to go to. The weird way medicine has kind of adapted is that we've carved out smaller and smaller niches so like you're a sports uh, physician who does a lot of knees and and shoulders hand and upper extremity for me so we do we kind of carve out our little world so we do you want to go to someone who does a lot of these uh, just because in that setting the risk of injury or downside is very low Uh, it's well well under one percent of folks the trickier part with the carpal tunnel is making sure that you get it checked out early enough so that mm-hmm. you're not into that severe or permanent change. That way we can hopefully harness, you know, the benefits of a pretty minimally invasive surgery, low risk surgery, and get people back to action.
0: So this has been incredibly helpful for the overview of carpal tunnel syndrome. Yeah. Are there any other insights that you would like to share? regarding carpal tunnel syndrome, carpal tunnel treatments, and what resources patients have at their disposal?
1: I think the biggest thing uh, is with carpal tunnel syndrome, just to remember to not minimize it. Again, it's one of those things, it's human nature, I'm guilty of this, where, you know, rub dirt on it, it'll get better in a few weeks, (laughs) and and a few months go by, or a few years go by, and then you say, geez, it's still bothering me. For the nerve-related injuries, if you're having any numbness and tingling, if something just feels off, or you feel like you're not you know, you're losing strength or you're not buttoning your shirt well, call someone, get it checked out, even if it ends up being mild or something totally different. In this case, it's worth getting it checked out just because the downsides of downplaying it or missing it can be quite significant for folks.
0: Okay, well, listen, thank you very much for joining us in Inform. Uh, again, this is uh, incredibly helpful, and we've taken a deeper dive here in the carpal tunnel, and I think it'll be great for patients to hear your perspective on the condition and what can be done for it. Christian, thank you so much for taking the time to help us learn more and understand more about couple tunnel syndrome. Uh, Dr. Christian Zhang, he's our guest here on OrthoInform. Again, if you'd like more information, please visit ibji.com. Christian, thank you very much for your time.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Thank you for listening to IBJIs OrthoInform brought to you by the Illinois Bone and Joint Institute, where our goal is to always help you move better, live better. If you would like to learn more about IBJI and our comprehensive musculoskeletal services, please visit our website at ibji.com. The discussion in this podcast is for general information and entertainment purposes only regarding musculoskeletal conditions. The information provided does not constitute the practice of medicine or other healthcare professional services, including the giving of medical advice, and no doctor-patient relationship is formed. Listeners with musculoskeletal conditions should seek the advice of their healthcare professionals without delay for any condition they have. The use of the information in this podcast is at the listener's own risk. The content is not intended to replace diagnosis, treatment, or medical advice from your treating healthcare professional.